Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everyone, and a big hello to you first-time listeners and new premium subscribers that have been joining us recently. Your response is appreciated, and we're very glad to have you with us. A quick notice to some of you contacted us with news that the premium subscriber link wasn't working. We tracked that down and found a glitch in some of the links that we recently provided, and we have corrected it. The show notes attached to today's episode, and hopefully all other show notes of various episodes, will all get you to the right place. We have a surprise for you today. Urban Legends is our most requested series, and this new one is Urban Legends number 6. You can catch up on the first five over at 1001 Stories for the Road, one of our three 1001 podcasts. The best way to enjoy all three is with our new app, 1001 Stories Network. You can find the iOS and Android links to this free app in our show notes. Premium member subscribers get access to all the archives, and that's a lot, plus new bonus episodes, and that link is in the show notes as well. And now, Urban Legends 6 from 1001 Heroes. The first one is titled, Good Luck, Mr. Gorski. As legend has it, when Apollo mission astronaut Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon, he not only gave his famous, One Small Step for Man, One Giant Leap for Mankind, statement, but followed it by several remarks. Usual communicative traffic between him, the other astronauts, and mission control. Just before he re-entered the lunar lander, however, he, according to legend, made the enigmatic remark, good luck, Mr. Gorski. Many people at NASA thought it was a casual remark concerning some rival Soviet cosmonaut. However, upon checking, there was no Gorsky in either the Russian or American space programs. Over the years, many people questioned Armstrong as to what the good luck Mr. Gorsky statement meant, but Armstrong always just smiled. On July 5, 1995, in Tampa Bay, Florida, while answering questions following a speech, a reporter brought up the 26-year-old question to Armstrong. This time, he finally responded. Mr. Gorsky had finally died, and so Neil Armstrong felt he could answer the question. The story goes like this. When Neil was a kid, he was playing baseball with a friend in the backyard. His friend hit a fly ball which landed in the front of his neighbor's bedroom windows. His neighbors were Mr. and Mrs. Gorski. As he leaned down to pick up the ball, 
Young Armstrong heard Mrs. Gorsky shouting at Mr. Gorsky. Words to this effect, only more explicit. You want me to do what? You're lucky you're getting anything. You'll get that from me when the kid next door walks on the moon. A true story? We'll never know. But you can bet Mr. Gorsky knows. Then there's the legend of the exploding toilet. And this is how that story goes. A man was working on the engine of his motorcycle out on his patio when somehow the motorcycle slipped into gear. The man, still holding the handlebars, was dragged through a glass patio door and along with the motorcycle, dumped onto the floor inside the house. The wife, hearing the crash, ran into the dining room and found her husband laying on the floor, cut and bleeding. The motorcycle laying next to him and the patio door shattered. The wife ran to the phone and called an ambulance. Because they lived on a fairly large hill, the wife went down several flights of long steps outside to the street to direct the paramedics to her husband. After the ambulance arrived and transported the husband to the hospital, the wife uprighted the motorcycle and pushed it outside. Seeing that gas had spilled on the floor, the wife used up all the paper towels she had, blotting up the gasoline, then, still needing something else, grabbed a roll of toilet paper and cleaned the remainder of the gasoline up with that, then threw the towels in the bathroom trash and the gas-soaked toilet paper in the commode. The husband was treated at the hospital and was released to come home. After arriving home, bandaged and tired, he looked at the shattered patio door and the damage done to his motorcycle. He became despondent, went into the bathroom, sat on the toilet, and smoked a cigarette. After finishing the cigarette, he flipped it between his legs into the toilet bowl while still seated. The wife, who was in the kitchen, heard a loud explosion and her husband screaming. She ran into the bathroom and found her husband laying on the floor. He had been blown off his seat and was lying on the bathroom floor, suffering burns on his buttocks, the back of his legs, and his groin. The wife again ran to the phone and called for an ambulance. The same ambulance crew was dispatched, and the wife met them at the street. The paramedics loaded the husband on the stretcher and began carrying him to the street. While they were going down the stairs to the street, accompanied by the wife, one of the paramedics asked the wife how the husband had burned himself. She told them, and the paramedics started laughing so hard, one of them tipped the stretcher and dumped the husband out. He fell down the remaining steps, breaking his arm. Now that's a bad day. Truth or legend? We'll never know, but it's a great story. This next one's titled, Don't Forget Your Undies. From the Sydney Morning Herald comes this story of a Central West couple who drove their car into Kmart, only to have their car break down in the car park. The man told his wife to carry on with the shopping while he fixed the car. The wife returned later to see a small group of people near the car. On closer inspection, she saw a pair of male legs protruding from under the chassis. Although the man was in shorts, his lack of underpants turned his private parts into glaringly public parts. Unable to stand the embarrassment, she dutifully stepped forward and tucked everything back into place. On regaining her feet, she looked across the hood and found herself staring at her husband, standing idly by and watching. The mechanic, however, according to the story, had to have three stitches in his head.
Reddit and other blogs and community forums are full of stories of half-human, half-animal creatures that have been seen peering in the windows of moving cars and trucks and mutilating livestock called skinwalkers or shapeshifters. This legend is so ingrained in American Southwest culture that when a Navajo woman was found brutally murdered in Flagstaff, the accused killer's defense in court was that the attack could only have been perpetrated by a skinwalker. There's even a defined and well-documented portion of Arizona known as Skinwalker Ranch, which was purchased by a billionaire named Bigelow, who was using the ranch for paranormal research. It's his belief that the ranch contains a portal to another very scary dimension. This story is coming up soon at 1001 Heroes in our new series, 1001 Greatest Unsolved Mysteries, Cattle Mutilations, and it's an unsolved FBI case for sure. 10,000 cattle and horses brutally killed in the past 50 years. Sucked completely dry of blood, all reproductive organs missing. Not one witness and no answers forthcoming, despite two long-running FBI investigations. Could it be the skinwalkers? Are the skinwalkers entering through a portal and disappearing again after quenching their thirst for blood? We don't know, but it's become a big urban legend out in the American Southwest. Dateline San Diego, California. Earlier this month, an 80-year-old, homeless, white-bearded man was found deceased under an overpass in San Diego, California. Nobody knew the man's name, but friends referred to him as Jesse. Investigators decided to try DNA testing with hopes that something would pop up in the nationwide DNA database. What came up on the computer screen in the high-tech lab stunned everyone, according to this legend. The DNA results of Jesse Doe were an exact match to the one and only Elvis Aaron Presley. Lab technician Robert Bransdale said he and his lab assistant, Madeline Hedgespeth, laughed when the name popped up. We thought somebody, somewhere, somehow in the system, pulled the greatest and most elaborate prank on us ever. We both laughed with hysteria for about an hour. Brinsdale told Jerry Harden of The Hollywood Word, a new entertainment publication based out of L.A. Brinsdale and Hedspeth then went to their superior with laughter, as if he were the one behind this prank. They were told to simmer down and stay quiet, that this was no laughing matter. From there, the results went up the ladder to the FBI and the CIA. Now, weeks later, FBI spokesperson Philip Hunter, and you can look him up, good luck, has revealed that the deceased man's body was actually the body of Elvis Presley, who had been in the Witness Protection Program since 1977. Mr. Presley was placed in the program under a voluntary basis. He wasn't a witness to any crime or anything like that. Once he had met President Nixon, the two had become great friends, and Mr. Presley wanted out of his life. He wanted to be an unknown. So President Nixon made this possible. Yes, it is official. Elvis Presley was really alive all that time, and only a handful of people knew it, most of which are no longer with us. True or urban legend? You decide. And here's the urban legend of the CIA agent that confessed to killing Marilyn Monroe. A retired CIA officer, Norman Hodges, has made a series of astonishing confessions since he was admitted to the Centera General Hospital on Monday. The 78-year-old claims he committed 37 assassinations for the U.S. government between 1959 and 1972, 
including the beloved actress and model, Marilyn Monroe. Mr. Hodges worked as a high-level operative for 41 years and was granted top-level security clearances. Trained as both a sniper and a martial arts expert, Mr. Hodges says he also has significant experience with more unconventional methods of inflicting harm upon others, like poisons and explosives. He says he was often employed as a hitman by that organization to assassinate individuals who could represent a threat to the security of the country. Most of his victims were political activists, journalists, and union leaders, but he also claims that he killed a few scientists and artists whose ideas represented a threat to the interests of the United States. Mr. Hodges says that Marilyn Monroe remains unique among his victims, as she is the only woman he ever assassinated. That one is pretty wild, but it's out there. You're left to decide. Urban legend, true or false? And this one, urban legend, true or false? You can stay overnight at a house in Iowa where eight people were brutally murdered with an axe in 1912. The answer? True. Sadly. Sometime between the evening of June 9th, 1912, and the following morning, six members of the Moore family and two house guests were brutally murdered at their home in Villisca, Iowa, with each victim having suffered an axe wound to the head. One suspect was tried twice and never convicted. The somehow still-standing house, which offers daytime tours and nighttime sleepovers, is the suspect of numerous rumors, legends, and reports of paranormal activity. Travel Advisor website lists dozens of reviews from day and nighttime visitors, ranging in tone from fun, best day I ever had, to creepy, things rolling across the floor. I didn't sleep. What is amazing is the number of families that visit and take the walkthrough. So kids, what would you like to do this weekend? Beach, mountains, or the Velisca Axe Murder House? On, and here's one of those reviews on TripAdvisor. Creepy overnight stay. We did the overnight stay at the house, and there were nine of us. We had a great time and captured some good pics with orbs and partial distortions. We were talking to the spirits upstairs and heard scratching on the attic door. We think we heard something on the recordings we took, but we have yet to clean it up to know for sure. We had set up in different areas of the house things such as blocks and balls to see if they could be disturbed, but nothing happened. Batteries drained quickly on cameras and phones, and even my nook. There are Bibles everywhere in that house. Few things that you should know, though. There's one extension cord to charge things up that is found in the room downstairs where the Stillinger girls were found. There's an AC heating unit that's in the same room, and also one upstairs. The barn out back is where the bathroom is. No shower, and there's an upstairs with a TV to play videos of the house and experiences. That is, if you want to sit up there at night. Really creepy. No smoking in the house. No water or other electricity access. And no sleeping on the furniture. Wheelchair access to the main floor only. I would advise you to bring air mattresses or cots because that floor is hard. Two of us slept in the kitchen and the other seven stayed in the living room, which was really tight. I wonder why no one wanted to sleep upstairs. Hmm. Ever heard the urban legend about the hanging man in a funhouse creep show that turned out to be the corpse of an outlaw? According to Snopes, that one is... Hang on. 
true. In December 1976, a Universal Studios camera crew arrived at the New Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California, to film an episode of the television action show The Six Million Dollar Man. In preparing the set in a corner of the funhouse, a worker moved the hanging man, causing one of this prop's arms to come off. Inside it was a human bone. This was no mere prop. This was a dead guy. The body was that of Elmer McCurdy, a young man who in 1911 robbed an Oklahoma train of $46 and two jugs of whiskey. He announced to the posse in pursuit of him that he would not be taken alive. He was proved right. They killed him in the ensuing shootout. McCurdy began his career as a sideshow attraction right after his embalming. He looked so darn good dressed up in his fancy clothes that the undertaker propped him up in a corner of the funeral home's back room and charged locals a nickel to see the bandit who wouldn't give up. The nickels were dropped into the corpse's open mouth from where they were later retrieved by the entrepreneurial undertaker. No next of kin showed up to claim McCurdy, so the corpse kept mouthing nickels for a few years. Carnival promoters wanted to buy the stiff, but the undertaker turned them down. McCurdy was producing a steady income for the funeral parlor. Why tamper with success? In 1915, two men showed up and claimed that McCurdy was their brother. They hauled the body away, supposedly to give him a decent burial in the family plot. In reality, McCurdy's brothers were carnival promoters, and this was a ruse to get the deceased away from that proprietary undertaker. The promoters exhibited McCurdy throughout Texas under the same billing as the undertaker had given him, the bandit who wouldn't give up. After that tour, McCurdy popped up everywhere, including an amusement park near Mount Rushmore, lying in an open casket in an L.A. wax museum, and in a few low-budget films. Before the $6 million man crew discovered this prop to be a corpse, McCurdy had been hanging in that Long Beach funhouse for four years. In April of 1977, the much-traveled Elmer McCurdy was laid to final rest in Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. To make sure the corpse would not make its way back to the entertainment world, the state medical examiner ordered two cubic yards of cement poured over the coffin before the grave was closed. McCurdy hasn't been seen hanging around amusement parks since. Urban Legend, Biff's Prediction from Back to the Future Remember the 1989 film Back to the Future 2, where Biff had the almanac with the results of future sporting events? One urban legend says Biff nailed it. Well, it turns out that Biff didn't make any predictions in the movie, but the screenwriter came pretty close in the movie as he attempted to poke some lighthearted humor toward the then-winless Cubs, by showing Marty standing in front of a Cubs stadium-lighted billboard announcing that the Cubs had won the 2015 World Series. The man who wrote the screenplay and imagined this unlikely scenario was Bob Gale, a lifelong St. Louis Cardinals fan. In a sport where players and fans believe in curses, jinxes, and superstitions, maybe it's not so crazy to think a movie has somehow spurred the Cubs to the brink of history. Maybe the movie was the curse breaker for the Cubs. Gale said the prediction grew out of the plot line in which primary character Marty McFly, famously played by Michael J. Fox, gets the idea from another character of going back in time to make money on sports betting. What better way to give him the idea than with a really outrageous scenario, which is the Cubs win the World Series, Gale said. 
It was a double joke because they win the World Series against Miami, which didn't even have Major League Baseball in 1989. And in truth, Miami didn't get their expansion franchise until 1991, and there were a lot of cities up for grabs. So that was still a pretty good sports call for screenwriter Gale. But that got even better when the Cubs did win the World Series the following year, 2016, in a knockdown fight against the Cleveland Indians. The first World Series win for the Cubs since 1908. And one more detail from Back to the Future. According to the space-time continuum, the 2014 baseball strike jolted baseball history back one year. So what do you know? The movie prediction was correct. There's another urban legend out there that one of the world's greatest violin players, Joshua Bell, sat in a busy train station and played for hours, receiving a few dollars in tips and not much else. Is this true, you wonder? Well, partially it is. Here's the story. There are a few popular versions out there that do have it wrong, and you can recognize them when you hear that the story begins on a cold January morning and that the violinist played six Bach pieces. That's your tip-off. The real story is even better, and you can find it at both thewashingtonpost.com and Snopes. This was actually a marketing survey conducted by Gene Weingarten, a Washington Post writer, to determine, among other things, how presentation affects consumer perceptions of quality. And quite a few such surveys have found that people will frequently designate one of two identical items as being distinctly better than the other simply because it's packaged or presented more attractively. Might this same concept apply to the arts, he asked. Would, for example, people distinguish between a world-class instrumental virtuoso and an ordinary street musician if the only difference between them were the setting? So on the 12th of January, 2007, about a 1,000 morning commuters passing through the L'Enfant Plaza station of the subway line in Washington, D.C., were, without publicity, treated to a free mini-concert performed by violin virtuoso Joshua Bell who played for approximately 45 minutes, performing six classical pieces, two of which were by Bach, during that span on his handcrafted 1713 Stradivarius violin, for which Bell reportedly paid $3.5 million. As Weingarten described the experiment, each passerby had a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in any urban area where the occasional street performer is part of the cityscape. Do you stop and listen? Do you hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation, aware of your cupidity, but annoyed by the unbidden demand on your time and your wallet? Do you throw in a buck, just to be polite? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? Shouldn't you? What's the moral mathematics of the moment? Three days earlier, Bell had played to a full house at Boston Symphony Hall, where fairly good seats went for $100. But on this day, he collected just $32.17 for his efforts, contributed by a mere 27 of the 1,097 passing travelers. Only seven people stopped to listen, and just one of them recognized the performer. The Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize in the feature writing category for Gene Weingarten's April 2007 story about this experiment based in part on the article's originality. Weingarten was therefore quite surprised 
at finding out in mid-2008 that his concept wasn't quite so unique. The very same experiment had been tried with strikingly similar results by another journalist 77 years earlier. Weingarten wrote, In a stunt ginned up by a newspaper named The Post, the Chicago Evening Post, violin virtuoso Jacques Gordon, a one-time child prodigy, performed for spare change on his priceless Stradivarius, incognito, for three-quarters of an hour outside a subway station. Most people hurried past, unheeding. The violinist made a few measly bucks and change. It was a story about artistic context, priorities, and the soul-numbing gallop of modernity. I obtained the copy, writes Weingarten, of the original May 1930 article from the long-defunct Evening Post. The main story bylined Milton Fairman was on page one under the headline Famous Fiddler in Disguise Gets $5.61 in Curb Concerts. The story began, A tattered beggar in an ancient frock coat, its color rusted by the years, gave a curbstone concert yesterday noon on windswept Michigan Avenue. Hundreds passed by him without a glance, and the golden notes that rose from his fiddle were swept by the breeze into unlistening ears. We learn from this story that two of the handful of songs played by Jacques Gordon were Massenet's Meditation from Thais and Schubert's Ave Maria. Two of the handful of songs played by Joshua Bell were Massenet's Meditation from Thais and Schubert's Ave Maria. Of the hundreds of people who walked by Gordon, only one recognized him for who he was. Of the hundreds of people who walked by Bell, only one recognized him for who he was. So Weingarten telephoned Bell. He, too, had not heard about this other street corner stunt. But though Jacques Gordon died two decades before Bell was born, Bell knew of him. The two men had shared something intimate. From 1991 through 2001, Bell played the same Strad that Gordon had once owned. The same one Gordon had played on the Chicago streets that day in 1930. For 11 years, Bell's fingers held the same ancient wood. And now you see why the real story is even better. And lastly, this handful from the strange but true file. First, the story of the leaping lawyer. A lawyer demonstrating the safety of windows in a Toronto skyscraper deliberately crashed through a pane of glass and plunged to his death. Gary Hoy, 38, fell from the 24th floor of the Toronto Dominion Bank Tower in 1993 as horrified witnesses watched. Gary Hoy, a senior partner with the law firm of Holden Day Wilson, had an unusual habit, body-checking the windows of his office at Toronto's TD Centre, notionally to demonstrate their tensile strength. On July 9, 1993, Hoy decided to liven up a party for incoming students by making his signature move on a 24th-story window. At his first attempt, the window held. As it dawned on the assembled youth that they'd hitched their career wagons to a firm where senior partners batter themselves against windows like demented houseflies, Hoy took a second run. This time, the glass popped out of the frame, sending Hoy free-falling to the courtyard below. Lamentably, if predictably, he died from his injuries. We can never know what motivated Hoy. A desire to prove the robustness of modern construction techniques? Whimsy? 
or simply just showing off. We do know that his early demise could have been avoided had he left the testing to the experts or consulted with structural engineer Bob Greer, who later told the Toronto Star, I don't know of any building code in the world that would allow a 160-pound man to run up against a glass and withstand it. Hoy's actions left him more celebrated in death than he'd ever been in life, netting him a 1998 Darwin Award. Sizable Snopes and Wikipedia entries and segments on the television shows 1,000 Ways to Die and Mythbusters. Following the accident, Peter Lowers, managing partner of Holden Day Wilson, told the Toronto Sun that Hoy had been one of their best and brightest. The firm went under three years later, according to this story. Then there's the accidental video porn star, and this is true. In 1986, the sheriff of Council Grove, Kansas, population 2300, accidentally returned an erotic video of he and his wife having relations to his local rental store. Soon, everyone in town seemed to have a copy. We'd give you more details, but 1001 is a family-friendly show. Then there's the cadaver kin. In 1982, a student at the University of Alabama School of Medicine recognized one of the nine cadavers taken to her class for dissection. It was her great-aunt who at one time discussed the merits of donating one's body to medical science. Then there's the story of the flying lawn chair. In 1982, Larry Walters of Los Angeles soared thousands of feet in the air on a lawn chair tethered to 45 weather balloons. He got so high, he disrupted air traffic and was eventually fined $4,000 by the FAA. The 33-year-old Vietnam vet purchased the chair from Sears, hoping to fly it 300 miles from his home to the Mojave Desert. And our last true story, the pool pervert. In 1994, a 33-year-old Floridian man got his you-know-what trapped in the suction hole of a public swimming pool while apparently seeking pleasure. Paramedics shut off the pool's pump, but the man's pool tool had become extremely swollen. They, meaning the hard-working paramedics, struggled for more than 40 minutes to pry him loose. Following a series of procedures, which only produced more pain for the hapless man, the team finally figured out a way to insert lubricant into the pool fitting, and the man was taken to Lakeland Regional Medical Center. Records do not show how long the public pool was closed after the event, or how the man explained this to his wife when he came home later that evening. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's rubber meets the road time for us here at 1001 Stories Network, and we're asking you for your support. We're asking you to become monthly subscribers to our show. The cost is only $2.99 a month, about the same cost as a blended coffee at most places that sell it. It's easy to listen to my shows every week, shows that I've been doing for three years now. And it's free. When you send us reviews telling us you love our shows, I take it to heart. When you suggest ideas you'd like us to try, I always respond quickly, and many times we'll bring that suggestion to life. When we do promotions on Facebook, I try to answer everybody. Our last one reached 24,000 people. Of those, 268 responded. And I think I got back to every one of them. It's easy to figure that somebody else is paying the bill for the entertainment, but the truth is, advertisers come and go, and very few people 
actually take the time to subscribe. That $2.99 a month is a big deal for my shows because it helps to pay hosting fees, app fees, and all the expenses 1001 occurs on this end, researching, writing, interviewing from a studio I rent hourly, narrating, editing, marketing, and distributing these shows in order to keep going in a very competitive medium. You might be a fan of all our 1001 shows or just 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It doesn't matter. The subscription fee helps me keep them coming. So I'm asking you to take a few minutes now and go to the link in the show notes or at 1001storiespodcast.com and to become a premium member. If just one out of every three of you took a moment to do this, it would be a huge help. I know it's a sacrifice, and I know it takes time, but I'm asking you to be that person and show your appreciation for what we're doing here. It's credit card or PayPal, and it's safe. Libsyn, our host, is the oldest, biggest, and best of the podcast host companies, and they offer a secure site for subscribers. Joining us makes you a premium member and supporter of our show, and with that, you get the satisfaction of knowing that your monthly gift is helping to support a family-friendly show that offers an amazing mixture of historical stories and drama, along with classic literature. We offer content that teaches history, uncovers mysteries, probes the mind, tells of legends, and brings past heroes to life. We receive lots of reviews that tell us of moms and dads listening in the car with the kids, of wives and husbands sharing our show, and similar. The knowledge gained from being a fan of 1001 is immense. For me, it's a fantastical journey, and each story takes me down another path to adventure and learning. We used to say that being a fan of the show means never being at a loss for something to talk about in a conversation. How true. You all know how much I appreciate your listening. Now it's time to take a minute and show your appreciation of our shows. We need your support, and we're asking you to step up. Thank you. Now, check the show notes, download the free app, then subscribe. You'll feel great that you're supporting one of the last non-corporate-owned independent podcasters who is providing family-friendly entertainment. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon.